Researchers have been studying the factors that influence us to say yes to the requests of others for over 60 years. And there can be no doubt that there's a science to how we are persuaded. And a lot of this science is surprising. When making a decision, it would be nice to think that people consider all the available information in order to guide their thinking. But the reality is very often different. In the increasingly overloaded lives we lead, more than ever, we need shortcuts or rules of thumb to guide our decision-making. My own research has identified just six of these shortcuts as universals that guide human behavior. They are reciprocity, scarcity, authority, consistency, liking, and consensus. Understanding these shortcuts and employing them in an ethical manner can significantly increase the chances that someone will be persuaded by your request. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Are you ready to level up the podcast for leaders, entrepreneurs, and business with your host, Jose Medina and Crystal Garcia? It's time to level up. Today we have a bonus episode for our listeners and a very special co-host for this episode as well, Raquel Medina. Raquel is the co-owner of Sage and Soul, a spiritual boutique company that specializes in everything mystical and magical. Raquel was a guest on our podcast in season one and also published her own podcast under the Sage and Soul brand. Hi, Raquel. Glad to have you as a co-host today. Hey, thanks for having me. Our topic is one that I'm pretty sure that we can all benefit from. How do you sell ice to an Eskimo? <laughs> so first I'm going to ask, do you know what that means? How to sell ice to an Eskimo? Yes. Um, it sounds like we're going to be dealing with persuasion today. Because if you can sell ice to an Eskimo, you can sell anything. Yes, you can. So we're going to be looking at six principles of persuasion developed by the renowned psychologist and author, Dr. Robert Cialdini. His book, published in 1984, titled Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, discussed six principles that affect how one person can influence or persuade one another. These principles are principles that salespeople have been using for years. And you may be thinking, well, I'm not a salesperson, so why do I even need to know these six principles? Simple. Salespeople are using these principles to persuade you each and every day, multiple times a day. And these principles have influenced you in one way or another, regardless of whether or not you've recognized the principle being applied. Having knowledge of these six principles will allow you to make better purchasing decisions and life decisions and not allow yourself to be influenced by others. It will allow you to identify the tactic that's being applied in the situation and allow you to make a more informed decision. In this undeniable level up discussion, we will give you the tools to identify when a persuasion method is being used against you and how to counteract your autopilot mode in order to make a conscious decision against the persuasion method being applied. And here to discuss the six principles of persuasion is our special guest, Jose Medina. Although Jose typically hosts the Level Up podcast, today he is switching seats with me and we'll be putting him in the hot seat this time. For those of you who don't know Jose yet or know him well, he is a 24-year Army veteran, entrepreneur, business owner, father, and now he adds grandfather to that list of hats he wears. Welcome, Jose. And thanks for allowing me to fill in for you today as we dig into your methods of persuasion. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be a guest on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Jose, let's start with your childhood. I know firsthand, but let's give our listeners a little insight into your background and your journey. Um, where would you say that you grew up? Well, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. It was, uh, nah, I'm just kidding. Um, I would say uh, growing up, um, I was kind of a military brat. So my dad was in the military. And as far back as I can remember, I was always in the military environment. And I would say we lived in Alabama. I kind of have some memories about living in Alabama. Then we moved to Panama and we were in Panama for a couple of years. But I think then we settled in California, at Fort Ord in Northern California outside of Monterey. And um, I think that's kind of where I would say I kind of rooted myself and I kind of call that home. But then I joined the military when I was 18 and then I kind of traveled a lot. So did that moving around that like bouncing around, did that impact you like making friends, like having a sense of, you know, like security or. 
It's funny that you say that you asked that question because like I, I personally feel like I'm an introvert, but I know how to pretend to be an extrovert. So I, and I think being an extrovert is part of my, maybe one of my superpowers because everybody thinks that I'm an extrovert and I'm like the social butterfly, but I'm really not. I really like to be by myself and I really don't like to be around a lot of people. But I, I don't also have never had a problem making friends either. Not because it comes easy, but because I make effort. So I kind of go out of my way and I still do that to this day. Like, Would it, you say like, you know, during your childhood or did you grow up in a wealthy family? Did you grow up um, in a, in like a good area? Yeah, my family was loaded um, with crap. <laughs> yeah. We we um we didn't have anything. It was um and it's funny because I know we weren't broke. I know I know we weren't poor when I was little. Like we weren't really poor. My dad had a car. My mom had a car, but they both worked. You know, I had a sister, two brothers. Uh, I'm the oldest out of four. A lot of times I was left responsible for everybody when my mom was at work, and you know, so it was kind of my my deal to like take care of everybody. And make sure everybody did what they were supposed to do. I think that's probably where my leadership skills come from because I was always like in charge, you know, I was left in charge. Um, and it's funny because I think Raquel being my oldest daughter, she probably got a lot of that too. Like always being left in charge, always being like, Hey, I got to go to work. I need you to take care of your brother and your sister. Like, you know what I'm saying? So I, <laughs> I think that, that, that happens a lot. I think that kind of causes you to mature a little faster than normal because you just put in this position of, of responsibility and authority um, so you're constantly in that, you know, in that state. So all the time. So, um, but yeah. What would you say is probably the most um, impactful thing that you experienced as a child? The most impactful thing I think that kind of changed the direction of where I was going is when my uncle passed away. My uncle was murdered when I was like in sixth grade, sixth, seventh grade. Yeah. Were you close to him? Why was that impactful? I wasn't very close to him, but um, like we weren't, we weren't like very close, but I, I was getting to know him and I was spending time with him. And I think he had a big influence on um, like some of the lessons that I learned as I got older, you know what I'm saying? In terms of how he lived his life and he was pretty fearless and like tough dude. He was a, you know, he was in a gang too. So, but I, I felt like the time that I spent with him was impactful to me, like as a person and, and how I carried myself into the future. Was that, did that have to do with you being bullied? Um, I think so. Yeah. Cause I was, I was bullied, but um, I actually stood up to him and it's kind of a funny story. Like, I was I was spending time with my grandmother and my uncle in, in Los Angeles because that's where he lived. He came home one night. My bed was in the living room. It was like a pull-out couch bed type deal. Um, and I was supposed to be going to bed, and I was laying in bed, and he had come home late, and he started he turned the light on to watch TV, and he was cooking. I got up, and I turned the light off. <laughs> and he came back in and turned the light on, and I how got up. How old were you? I was in sixth grade. I was, so I was like, uh, I don't know. How old are you in sixth grade? Like 10, 9, 9 <laughs> 10, 11? I don't know. Something like that. I'm like 12. Like 12? 12. Oh, that was like 12. Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, like 12. 11 or 12. So then he grabbed me by my shirt and he put me up against the wall. Like, and he like he was like, you know, like he like cussed me and stuff like, you know. But I wasn't afraid of that, you know what I'm saying? And, and like just li little little pieces of lessons that I learned, like spending time with him and getting to know him, kind of developed who I be eventually would become, you know what I'm saying? I think he had a big influence on, on changing. And then when he passed away, like that I saw myself. Yeah. In that same regard, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, he died when he was 23. I'm probably going to die when I'm 23. And I acted that way. I don't have forever on this earth, so I'm just going to do what I want. Right. Were you a good kid? Like, did you get in any trouble? I was one of the best kids that I knew. <laughs> that you knew? Um, you must not you know, have known I, any kids. I wasn't. <laughs> I would say I was a good kid all the way until like around seventh grade. And about seventh grade, I started getting in a lot of trouble. Part of that was the bullying. I was getting bullied in sixth grade, and I was getting picked on a little bit. And it was because I, I had bummy clothes. I didn't have, like, I had an afro. And, you know, I just, you know, I wore the same outfit every day to school. Like, that doesn't make you very popular. I don't think my parents understood the social, the, the social dynamics of the education system and how that impacts your, your development and how that impacts your, your motivation and your self-esteem. Sure. Like, and that's really important in the development of a kid. Um, and that's one something that I really considered with my kids when, when I became an adult and I had children I was always thinking about how my decisions and what I did would impact them socially in school. You know what I'm saying? Like the car I drove, or the clothes they wore. Like I always wanted to make sure that socially they wouldn't have a tough time because of something that I was doing. But I, I wasn't the most popular kid when I was in sixth grade. And then in seventh grade, I kind of had a little bit of a, of a growth spurt. I went from being this little scrawny kid and then I was kind of a little bit bigger and, you know, I was athletic, you know, so it was like, it was a little bit different. Started getting into a lot of fights and I love to fight. I've always loved to fight. And I don't know if that's, um, you know, I was watching the the Tyson special the other day, uh, the, the Tyson movie on Hulu. 
he also got bullied. Yeah. And became this fighter. You know what I'm saying? Like, th things happened in a way that he became a boxer, you know? And I feel like for some people, th certain things that happen in your life make you. And they're, they're survivors because no matter what happens, they get stronger from it. They don't right. get weaker. And then there's other people that no matter what happens in their lives, they get weaker no matter what. I know? think that happens in your decision. The decision 100%, you make, yeah. the response you have. Yeah, 100%. I truly believe, and I don't know if I consciously believe this when I was younger, but I consciously believe that you can't control the conditions. You can only control your response. And so oh, my response sure. was, all right, if they're going to bully me, I'm going to fight back. And then what ended up happening is I didn't lose any fights. So then I became the bully. You know what I'm saying? Now I'm the one that's beating everybody up because everybody beat me up. I think that's kind of how it works. And, um, and I would say that I got in a lot of trouble. It, it, you know, the grenade situation... When I was in seventh grade, I brought a grenade home to school. And it wasn't... Man, if that happened today... Yeah, I'd still be under the jail. I was being bullied, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and I, I went to somebody and I, I asked for some help. And the, the help that he gave me was a, a hand grenade. You know, He was like, here, take this. And I'm like, okay, how, how do I use it? <laughs> how do I use this thing? Because I'm, I'm about to blow these two guys up and keep jumping me. You know what I'm saying? They're like, um, I'm not playing with these guys no more. I think in that experience, I got confused, right? So I think when we're young and we're growing up in a neighborhood where it's rough and tough like it was when I was growing up, you start to associate respect and you get it convoluted with fear. Right. So what you really want is you want people to fear you because you don't want to be a victim, right? So you don't want to be the prey. You want to be the predator, right? right? So what you do is you say, I want to be respected. And respected means you don't come to my street. And if you come to my street, I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to beat your ass because you didn't come check in. This is my street, and, and that's a sign of disrespect. I, I had a song a, a few days ago that I put out that says, when I was young, you couldn't walk in my backyard. When I was young, you couldn't walk in my backyard. You couldn't walk across my backyard, because I'm gonna, they'll come and get me and be like, Jose, there's somebody in the backyard that just walked up the street, and I'll go out there and I'll, I'll check them, you know what I'm saying? But that's because I thought that I was, I was garnering respect. Right. And what I really was doing was I was trying to make people afraid of me, but it's a mechanism to protect yourself. And so you're trying to have this air of, of yourself, of, of carrying yourself a certain kind of way, but it's a method really of persuasion, right? I'm persuading them to fear me so that they don't challenge me. But yeah, I ended up getting a lot of trouble. I ended up getting ex expelled up over the grenade situation and uh, I came back to school in eighth grade. A lot of fights, a lot of suspensions there. I went to high school, a bunch of the same. And I, I ended up going to Boys Town when I was about 15. I went to Boys Town after um, a gang member came in and pulled out a gun on me in class. At the time, I was, uh, again, fighting a lot. And this is a guy, I, I broke out his front teeth, um, knocked him down a flight of stairs, and, uh, and he came back to the, to the school to, I guess, to kill me, but it didn't play out that way. So I got lucky. That's crazy. So you yeah. mentioned going to Boys Town. Do you think yeah. that was a, a situation in your life that changed the trajectory of your life? I wish I could say that it did, but... The person who helped me get to Boys Town, that was Connie Dombrowski. She was um, came like a mom to me, right? But it was because uh, she knew that if I went to Juvenile Hall in California, that's where all my friends were. And so she was like, "If this kid," and she went to the, she went to the courthouse and she, you know, she spoke on my behalf and she was like, "Look, if you guys send this guy to Juvenile Hall, like all his friends are there, like he's gonna become worse. He's gonna be even worse than he is now. So we recommend we take him out of state where he doesn't know anybody." And I know the perfect place. Like she had connections in uh, in Boys Town, so she made some phone calls and she got me in, and um, she helped me get emancipated from my parents. So I got emancipated when I was fifteen, and around this time is when I was finding out my kid's mom was pregnant. So I had just found out she was pregnant, and I had just got sent to go to Boys Town, and I was supposed to go to Boys Town for three years. I was supposed to graduate from high school wow. there. Yeah. So that was my that was my the judge was like he can either go to to, to juvenile hall for six months or he can go to Boys Town for three years. And Boys Town was not not really like a prison. It wasn't built like a. It, yeah. it wasn't set up like a prison. It's really set up like a kind of like a um, a group home type yeah. setting. Yeah. So I, I ended up going there, and and I wish that would have been an experience where I could have said that that changed me or transformed me. But what happened is, the first day that I got there, I came straight from the block. Right. And I came straight from a from a crip neighborhood where everybody wore blue. Right. So when I show up, I'm in all blue, and everybody in the house they're all bloods. So I went into a home that I had to fight every day in. They put me in that house, but it was oblivious to everybody else what was going on because they didn't, didn't understand. Know. They didn't yeah. understand what they were seeing. So, of course, when I walk in, I'm like, hey, what's up, cuz? And they're like, what's up, blood? And I'm like, I already know I'm in a dangerous position. 
You know what I'm saying? I already know I'm in danger. And so I got jumped. Like, I got jumped the first night that I was there. I got jumped. Of course, now, instead of this being a positive experience for me, now it's a, a survival. I'm in survival mode. And, um... Take your time faster. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're 15 years old, right, and you're away from everybody that you know and you're isolated, we just talked a little, a little bit, you know, when we're talking about persuasion and you're talking about um, dark psychology and you're pulling somebody away from everything that they know and everything that they love, right, you're vulnerable because you don't have any connections. You know, I heard a song the other day and um, there was a part of the song that I really liked because it, it, in the song, he says, um, he's kind of telling his story, and he says, in the darkness is where I learned to shine. Yeah. And I'm like, man, that's so very powerful because you can be placed in positions where where you feel like you're you're in the dark, when you feel like you're in a bad place, and that's where you get your power. Yeah, it's true. What I was going to say is, is when you're 15, and you're put into a situation where you're psychologically removed from everything that you know and everything that you love, right? You hope that you're put into a safe situation. And when you're not, when you're put into a situation where you have to survive, you find a way. You find a way to be resilient, right? You find a way to, to, to survive no matter what you have to do, right? And so I think that being in a situation like that, what it taught me was that I can survive anything because I was 15. I was by myself. I was in a house full of, full of gang members who were just attacking me all the time, you know. And um, and of course, for like the first, I would say like for the first month, I was isolated because I didn't have any friends and I didn't know anybody. And I didn't know who was who. I didn't know who were, who were, the, who were the guys that were on my side, who were the guys that were on the other side. And I didn't know the politics of where I was at. And so it took me a minute. But, um, you know, it's really hard to, take, to do something like that to a kid. And I blamed Connie for it. I blamed her. Like, I hated her. You know what I'm saying? Like, I had nightmares of her every night because I felt like she threw me into a, into a pit full of snakes. And I, I know now that it wasn't her intent. I know it wasn't on purpose. I know she didn't know that she had put me in a, in a dangerous position. You know what I'm saying? But I was of a mindset of, I'm just gonna kill anybody who fucking comes towards <laughs> me, right? Like that was my mindset. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna have to murder some people in this, in this place because there's no way I'm gonna become, I'm not gonna be a victim, you know what I'm saying? And I fought back all the time. What, what ended up happening is, because of my outburst and because of my my attitude, right? Because I was get because I had got jumped a couple of times from some of the kids from the some of the kids in in this in a in the um in the home that I was in, I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. I wasn't allowed to do anything because I had no privileges. You had to earn your privileges, and I wasn't earning any because I was being I was being insolent. I was you know doing whatever I wanted to do because I was angry. You know, when I finally got got the ability to to leave the house. One of the first places that I went to was a football game. Our, our Boys Town had a team, is a, is a, a football team. And so I went out to the, um, to the football game and I was sitting there by myself because of course I, didn't, I hadn't socialized with anybody. I didn't know who to trust. So I wasn't making any friends, you know what I'm saying? I, I, to me, everybody was an enemy at that point, right? And I even heard people talking like behind me. They were like, this guy's not gonna make it. Like this guy is because I was like of that mindset. I was like of the, anybody comes my way, like I'm doing some damage. Um, and so I'm sitting here at this football game that I did not want to go to. They forced me, right? They were like, you, have, you can't stay here. You got to come with us. Everybody's going. Um, and so I'm sitting there by myself and I'm watching everybody. I'm watching what's going on. Uh, one of the guys walks up to me. He, I see him coming my direction. And he was, a, he was a blood. His name was Cameron. He walks up to me and he's like, He's like, hey, what's up? And I said, what's up? I, I, I thought it was going to be another fight, you know? Yeah. And he goes, he goes, no, nah, no, nah, I just want to talk to you, man. I just want to, I just want to holler at you real quick. And um, so he sat down next to me. So he's, he's like, where are you from, man? Like, where are you from? And he's like, oh, you know, and so I tell him, I'm, I'm from I'm California, I'm from Seaside. He goes, all right. He goes, um, he goes, you see that guy over there? He goes, that guy's a, that guy's a crip. That guy's a crip. That guy's a crip. That guy's. And as he's pointing them out, I'm starting to see what everybody else already knows is how they're claiming who they are. It's it is real subtle. It's nothing like a pair of blue earmuffs on 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 a person's left arm 
or a blue bandana looped through their um, through their belt loop, or like these little small little hints of 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 claiming your set in an environment where you're not allowed to. You know what I'm saying? So it's just very subtle. Where I'm from, Crips are always fighting other Crips. So just because they're Crips and I'm a Crip, like that doesn't make us that doesn't make us friends, right? Right. And and again, I didn't understand the politics of where I was at yet. I said, cool, like you know, whatever, like it's cool. And so he walks away. And then all of a sudden, this all these guys that he didn't point it out are now co- congregating and coming up to me. So again, I'm thinking <laughs> I'm about to have to fight all these guys. Like you know, what I'm saying I'm in survival mode mentally. And so when they come up to me, one of the guys that was right in the in the, in the front um, that kind of was like leading the pack was a dude who came from. Uh, he was a guy from Compton, and he was a he was a crip. He was named Shante. Um, and as he walked up to me, he was like he like he walked up to me with all the guys behind him. And he's like standing there looking at me. And so I stood up. I thought, I'm thinking we're getting ready to fight, right? I'm standing up. He, he, they're, they're looking at me. And I'm like, what's up, cuz? And so they just all gathered around me. And they all hugged me. And they all pulled me in. <laughs> so my experience changed. Because now I had family. So my experience changed because now I had family there. And, uh, oh, man, we fucked in bloods up, man. <laughs> what, what about the guy that pointed them all out? <laughs> Uh, he was um he tried to stay neutral he tried to stay out of things he was like um he was trying to change his life and that's the thing like i went there with the intent of leaving the street life behind i knew i had a kid on the way so my goal was to change like my goal was to be different and when i got there i realized that when you put negative energy out it stays with you no matter where you go and so even though i was trying to leave that life behind it was still following me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it takes a lot of time to get away from that, you know? And so there's a reason why I only lasted six months in Boys Town. I was supposed <laughs> to be there for three years. They couldn't wait to kick me out <laughs> because yeah. everybody who everybody who transgressed against me was met with violent force. <laughs> like we destroyed those guys. Every opportunity we, go- we could, I was full of rage and I was full of hate. And here's the politics of that I didn't know when I got there. So because we were in Nebraska, in Omaha, they considered anybody who came from California to be uh, be an OG. So me stepping in, I was the second person in command behind Shantae. And Shantae didn't want to be, he didn't want to gangbang. <laughs> he, did, he, was, he wanted to be out of that life, you know what I'm saying? But I was full blown, like ready to go to war. And so my mindset was a little bit different than his. And so naturally, people gravitated to me for leadership. You know what I'm saying? And and because I was always a natural leader, it was very easy to call the shots. But also, you know, even though you talk about about the fighting and stuff and that aspect of it, wasn't there a kid who you protected during your time? Yeah, there was a kid. His name was Donnie. And um, Donnie, Donnie came to Boys Town. Um, because his father had got charged with um, sexual assault of some some I don't know if it was a kid or another uh, but it was a girl but uh, and his stepmom didn't want him and so he was brought into Boys Town and he was like I want to say he was like nine or ten so he wasn't even he wasn't a gang member no, getting in trouble he no. he just he just didn't have nowhere else to go yeah and so the the house parents and this is why I say you go to a place where you think you're safe because the house parents didn't give a shit about your safety. They didn't give a shit about if you were okay. And they put him in a room by himself. A nine-year-old kid in a room by himself with with predators, with with um, people that were unscrupulous. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like he's either gonna get beat, he's gonna get raped, or, you know, you just don't know. You don't know what's gonna happen, you know what I'm saying? But, and knowing this, they still put him in a room by himself. And so, I know what it feels like to be isolated. You know what I'm saying? I know what it feels like to not have to, to not have anybody to watch my back. You know what I'm saying? So when they put him in there, so I started taking care of him. I started watching, you know, I started watching his back and I made sure everybody left him alone. But at nighttime when he would go to sleep, I wouldn't be there. He'd be in another, I was in another room, you know? And so what he would do is in the middle of the night, after everybody fell asleep, he would leave his room and he would come sleep on the floor by my bed, <laughs> you know? Because he was scared. Not of monsters. He was scared of the kids in the house, you know? The other kids in the house. And of course, 
and at night they would do their rounds and they would walk through the house they would check all the rooms and stuff like that or early in the morning they would come in and they would check the rooms and um they would see this kid sleeping on the floor near my bed <laughs> and so they started they started inquiring like they started doing some type of an investigation trying to figure out if i had been like sexually assaulting this kid you know what i'm saying like and i'm the only person in the house that was protecting him you know yeah. but you know that's that's just the way it is man i have always been the person that people come to for protection when they need protection and i've always been the person that can protect people when they need that protection. I've always been a bully of bullies, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like I can't stand when people abuse their power and then they pick on someone who's weak. Anybody can beat someone who's weak. You wanna right. impress me? Beat somebody who's not weak. Beat somebody yeah. who's strong. Mm -hmm. Anyways, Boys Town was rough to start off with. It was rough, but then it, it ended up turning into something different. By, by the time I left, I was I was pretty much running things in Boys Town in, in terms of um, the gangs that were there and we had they had the most amount of fights inside you know once i got there and they just couldn't control it and so getting rid of me was a way of uh kind of de-escalating the things because anytime a new a new blood came in he got be he got beat up he got put in the hospital and and people would do it like and then come tell me about it like i wasn't even <laughs> i didn't even have to say hey when this guy gets here like you know they would just do it and so you know what's interesting is that right up until um on, right right before she passed away um connie thought that that was like the best group home that anybody could possibly go to ever that it just had this astounding you know reputation and yeah. you know she had no idea so uh, you know of course we were putting you in the hot seat today because yeah. um when we discussed doing a podcast on on persuasions on the methods of persuasion you're the only person that i could think of <laughs> with the skill set that really is so powerful in this arena that you honestly were the best person to to have sit in that seat. And so what up until this point that you've shared so far, was there ever a point in that time where you feel like you utilize any methods of persuasion or where even if you weren't aware that that's what you were doing? Yeah, so so even in Boys Town, the, the fact that I came from California and that I was automatically an OG, considered an OG in that in that in that rank structure uh, of being in Boys Town that was authority so that gave me the ability to influence and to persuade a lot of people that were there that were looking for that leadership you know what I'm saying so it was easy to take take advantage of that and of course everybody looked for me for guidance and of course my guidance was always be as violent as possible like right you know in terms of leaving Boys Town like I feel like when I left Boys Town my goal was to straighten my life out and fix things and I tried to come back to California and do that in a way that that allowed me to get away from the problems that I was that, that I was mixed up in I feel like there's some negative persuasive things that was used on me while, while I was in Boys Town um, and I would say like for example the house parents like they were very um, like one of the things that they said to me was like you're here because your parents don't love you you're here because nobody wants you you're trash unfortunate yeah that's the kind of reinforcement and the kind of persuasion that can it's, it's like dark psychology when you talk about dark psychology it's like you're isolating somebody and then you're making them feel bad about themselves so that you can control them in a way that that's beneficial for them you know what i'm saying right if i was a, of a weaker mindset that might have worked i've always had high confidence so like that, that was ineffective and even for them to do the investigation and think that i'm doing something to this kid like that was also another another way of attacking me and isolating me from the other kids that were in the house and trying to right. break up the um, the fact that everybody looked up to me. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like so, I think that 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 uh, that attempt failed, but I think it was they. I, I could see that they were trying to do something that was nefarious. You know, and also, you know, I, I staged a I staged a runaway. Like you know what I'm saying? Like you staged a runaway. Yeah, we we were. Was it a like, massive runaway? It was massive. Yeah, it was wow. like 30 people. Like <laughs> that's yeah, we that's pretty out. massive. <laughs> And then it ended up being a snowstorm, so like we all canceled it except one guy. He, he didn't get the memo. <laughs> he ended up running. He's the only person who ran away. Poor like guy. He, yeah. he ended up back, didn't he? Yeah, he, called, he got all, he got as far as the train station, and then he called back and was like, "Somebody come get me. It's cold." Oh man. <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't know anything about persuasion then. And then I, I came back to California, and I tried to get back to school and stuff like that. And uh, I, I tried to be, I tried to do the, the things that were right and. Uh, wasn't always right. What happened in your life that took you outside of that 
that changed the, the trajectory for you? Um, I think I think what happened in my life that changed the trajectory of where I was going is my daughter was born. I think when when Raquel was born, I became a different person because my whole life I'd always thought I ain't gonna live past twenty three. So what's the point? You know what I'm now saying? You have to now. You have somebody you yeah. gotta protect. When, but not only that, I was worried. I was worried about her. Like I don't care if I died at twenty three, right. but I didn't want her to die at three. You know what I'm right. saying? And um, I had enemies. I had a lot of people that were not wanting to see me live past 23. So, um, and I was worried that she would be the one to get caught in the crossfire of that. You know what I'm saying? She'd be the one that'd be targeted. And uh, I had to, I had an opportunity to join the military and that was definitely not something that I ever wanted to do. Um, I had actually dropped out of school at the time. I was sitting in front of a, in front of a crack house, sitting in a car, waiting for somebody to come back to the car. And I was sitting in the passenger seat and I was supposed to be on, the, I was supposed to be the lookout. <laughs> so I'm doing a bad job as a lookout. I'm sitting. I'm sitting in the seat, and what I'm doing is I'm I'm looking for a song on a, on a cassette tape, and I'm fast forwarding it. And I have a pistol sitting in my lap. I'm like, I think I was 17 at the time. All of a sudden, I get a tap on the window, and it was uh, the recruiter. His name was uh, Sergeant First Class Porsche. I always remember this guy's name, Porsche. He was a big old black dude. He had to be man to be walking through the, the seaside like <laughs> in his uniform and whatnot. And so. Um, <laughs> I rolled down the window and like, what the fuck do you want? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why are you knocking on my glass? I'm on the window. I'm supposed to be lookout. I felt like I got caught short. He says, uh, hey, man, you ever thought about joining the military? And I said, man, get the fuck out of here. I ain't, I ain't trying to join the military. So he handed me his card. He goes, well, have you ever changed your mind? Here's my, here's my card. Just give me a call back. He saw the gun in my lap. So he gives me his business card and he leaves. And uh, um, I would say like maybe two or three weeks later, there was an incident where <laughs> persuasion would have been useful. But um, I was unable to persuade something from happening. And so I ended up having to join the military uh, after that in order to get out of the environment that I was in because it was a pretty hot, pretty volatile situation. So, And I think that was the beginning of like breaking that, that cycle, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. How do you think, you know, when you look at, at your childhood and then you look at how – even as a young parent, you know, automatically people, there's a stigma where people think, you know, I also had kids young as well. How do you feel like your your parenting or the life that you provided your kids differed from the life that you had growing up? I think I was more connected to my kids than my parents were connected to me. I personally felt like a burden to my parents. Like we were something that was like holding them back from doing what they wanted to do. I feel like I was more connected with my kids. I was more in tuned with their needs and their environment. I was less selfish about, I was selfish, but I was less selfish than my parents were, you know, um, in terms of making sure they had what they needed, making sure they got school clothes and like all that stuff is important to kids. Like we, we as parents, we don't often realize that we set our kids up for failure to be bullied and to be picked on when we say, hey, just wear this. Like, just here, here's a here's a pair of pants from Walmart. You know what I'm saying? Right. Here's some shoes from Walmart. Here's a jacket from Walmart. Like, everybody knows your clothes all came from Walmart. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and even though it's sad, but the the reality of it is is that we are social people. And so when we try to fit in socially at school and you're wearing Walmart clothes or Kmart, at the time it was Kmart, Kmart brand clothes, like, people are going to make fun of you. You know what I'm saying? And they're, they're going to clown you. And you have you can either do one of two things. You could succumb to that or you can overcome that. I overcame it by shoplifting and stealing and making my own money and buying my own stuff. Like and I I think that uh you know, that's I've just been resilient like that my whole life and I've always been a big influence on my friends um because I I I'm the kind of person that is always going to find a way, you know what I'm saying? So I definitely think that that having having gone through a lot of the things that you went through really plays into you know somebody can go to school and learn some of these things they can read you know the book that we mentioned and learn some of those things yeah as well but i think that in experiencing life situations where you're forced to come up with unique unique responses to what's happening that you develop some of those skills during those events yeah because you're trying to survive you know yeah you develop a warrior mentality yeah, and I, and I think that um, for me it was about resiliency, and I think that I had to be resilient when I was being bullied 
in sixth grade. I think I had to be resilient when I went to Boys Town. And those are all small things of resiliency that as you go through those things and you overcome those things, that it can either make you a weaker person or it can make you a stronger person. And because of my resiliency, like, I feel like I've been able to deal with everything else, like, in my life because of that. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing that can happen to me that is going to break me. Right. Like, it would take a lot. Like, you know, it would take a lot to break me. I feel no matter what situation you put me in, I'm going to survive it because I've been through every right. any negative situation you can think of. I've been to war. I've been to, I can't, not, not prison, but, like, I'm saying a group home, like, where right. it's, you know, and I've survived that. And I feel like life is just about overcoming obstacles and getting past them and um, and being able to persuade people to accept you and to change, you know, to change and to be able to maneuver. A big part of influence is, or a bit, big part of persuasion is being able to move in multiple circles. I'm able to navigate in, in circles where it's in the streets. Right. You know what I'm saying? I'm able to navigate in an environment where it's educated. I'm able to, to to navigate in an environment where it's business, and that's because I can I can assimilate to the necessary skill sets to be able to move in that circle. Um, I can put on the correct uniform, and then I can speak the language of that environment. But the more fluidly you can do that, the better you are at maneuvering and at moving and at making things happen. When I was in, in uh, running the, the warehouse in Stockton, California, I felt the most comfortable. Of all the places I've ever worked, to include the military, of all the places I've ever been, I felt the most comfortable there because 95% of the people that were working in that warehouse had either been to prison, had were in gangs, or, you know what I'm saying, came from that environment. And because, because of my background, I had a certain level of comfort there. I was able to do things in that, in that environment that someone at my level as a general manager of a distribution center could never have been able to do there. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because because of the connection that I had with the experience of the guys that were there trying to provide for their families. Right. You know, that they're they're yeah, outside of here I'm a gang member. But when I come to work, I'm a forklift driver. You know what I'm saying? And I, and all I'm trying to do is protect my family. All I'm trying to do is pay the rent. All I'm trying to do is get food, you know? But if you don't have that experience, it's really hard for you to be um, to have empathy. Because in your mind, it's a choice. You're, choo- you're choosing the gangbang. But no, you're trying to stay alive. It's, it's challenging, man. You know, coming from that background, I think I learned a lot of my skills of persuasion from that, of being able to influence people, of being able to control people in a way where, for example, there was a, there was a guy that, we, um, that I got into a fight with when I was in Boys Town that ended up in the infirmary. And when he got out of the infirmary, the first thing he did was come to me and say, I don't want this life. I don't want this to be the rest of my three years that I'm here. I just want a truce. And I said, okay, we'll set a truce. You don't disrespect me, I won't disrespect you. That was the attitude of the rest of my, my people. Like a week later, he got jumped by my guys. And so I had to pull my guys to the side and go, hey, look, he's asking for a truce, we're gonna give him a truce. The situation that happened when I got home that made me join the military, I had a friend of mine that came to, he was from Stockton, he came to visit in, in Seaside and. uh when he got there, some guys up there didn't like that he was there. He was from a different neighborhood, and so they tried to kill him, you know? And he happened to be inside of my baby's mom's house. And so when they called me, they were like, hey, Jose, Keith is here, and everybody's outside, and you're going to kill him. And if you don't come here and do something, they're going to come in the house, and they're going to pull him out, and they're going to murder him outside. Or they're going to murder him in the house. And I have, a, I have fear that Raquel's going to get injured. She was a baby at the time. And so I went up there, and I tried to convince, you know, 30 people that were pissed off that wanted to kill this guy to let him go, <laughs> you know, and I couldn't, I, I couldn't convince them, you know what I'm saying? As, as persuasive as, as I was, I couldn't convince him, but I was able to convince two other guys to come help me take him out the house and, and saved his life. And had I not had the ability to do that, this guy wouldn't be here. And I had to get two guys that were from out of, out of, the, out of the state to come into the projects and, and to, you know, provide this guy who they don't even know protection. That's persuasion. They put themselves in danger for a person they don't even know because I asked them to, you know? When I was in high school, I was the guy that people would come and say, hey, uh, there's gonna be a fight this afternoon, I'm gonna fight so-and-so, and I want you to be there to make sure nobody jumps in. Because they know I'm gonna make sure nobody jumps in. If my word is my bond, so if I say it, it's so. And that, that was really my life growing up. It was like, it's, it's, um, 
not always fun. <laughs> you know, it was tough sometimes. And um, but it made me who I am today, and it made me resilient, and it made me strong mentally. You know what I'm saying? Like, because um, those things could have could have broken anybody. And you're right. I, I joined the military, and I, I had a, an amazing career. I had a couple of deployments, and uh, and I learned a lot in that process too. But I think that the background, the foundation, was built you know, growing up and, and growing up the way that I did. So, well, I know that there's so much more to your story, but, yeah. um, you've shared a lot of stuff with us and yeah. really some very personal things. And I think that our listeners will definitely appreciate getting to know you on a much deeper level. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate you letting me sit in the hot seat for a little bit. And, yeah, <laughs> I definitely appreciate it's usually it. you poking at me, making me cry. So. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you know, it's funny because that story is a story that I've told over and over again, but I've never really put applied any emotion to it. You know what I'm saying? I've told that story, man, over a hundred times of, yeah. of, of being in Boys Town, and it's it's not something that has ever touched me emotionally, and I don't know why it did today for some reason. I don't know why. I, maybe I've just felt a little bit more vulnerable than normal, but um, yeah, that was a tough story to share. Boys Town wasn't a sad time for me. I kind of look at that as a as a spartan moment you know when they take the little baby out and they go is this baby going to survive or not you know what i'm saying and you if the baby survives then he's good to go on to the next level of adulthood as of, as a warrior um and i looked at it like that as my whole life i've always looked at it like that like like that was a, that was like a rite of passage like i passed that level and i graduated to you know something different you know right so, so I've never looked at myself like a victim, like you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah I got jumped a couple of times, but who cares? We all get jumped a couple of times in life, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it, it wasn't it wasn't an emotional story, but now when I'm looking at it and I'm thinking about it from a pers- perspective of a dad and a grandfather, and you know what I'm saying, somebody who's it makes who's, you sad. It makes me sad that yeah. that um that somebody can be in that situation and, and that people can be so ignorant to the fact that that's what's going on. You know what I'm Absolutely. saying? Like. And be so clueless, and uh, and I know Connie didn't intend for that to happen, and that's why I never shared it with her. I never told her that story, and it's because it's not going to change anything. She's going to feel bad for something that she had no control over. Right. There's no way she would have ever known. Like it, I didn't know for the whole month that I was there who was who. You right. know, it took it took time to kind of learn that and to be in that environment to to kind of figure that out. But and yeah. you know, psychologically, when um once a child has formed their personality and kind of who they are. You can't really change that person without there being a significant emotional event. And so those, those events that we experience throughout our journey in life are really what shape us. Yeah. So why do you think you're so good at persuasion? I think for a couple of reasons. One, I'm extremely knowledgeable when it comes to logistics. If I'm doing any type of business with logistics, I can speak the lingo. Because I have that credibility of confidence and um, and knowledge, it's very easy when I walk into a warehouse and I sp- and I start speaking the lingo for everybody to go, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm I'm immediately an expert. When you look at my resume, and you go, oh, I'm Amazon, Cardinal Health, you know, all these all these all these logistics places. Oh, 23 years in the army and in, 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 uh, supply chain management. Okay, here's a guy who knows what he's doing. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of method of persuasion that I used to get a job that I shouldn't have gotten, by the way, because I got fired. But <laughs> So I applied for a job, and I was meeting the, the the vice president inside of a warehouse that was completely gutted. There was nothing in it. It, it was old Toys R Us warehouse. And I was meeting this guy for the very first time. And when I came in, he was interviewing me. We were interviewing at the warehouse, and we, and we were walking and talking. And I was like, okay, well, first of all, the guy that you hire for this job, he's got a big job ahead of him. You're going to have to remove all these racks. You're going to have to open up some space over here. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to fix all these things over here. <laughs> and as I'm doing this, and this is just me and him having a conversation. So he hasn't even asked me, hey, so uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm giving him a rundown like like this place is a hot mess. And But I know, and then I say things like this. When I was in the military, I was able to go out and I was able to build a warehouse in the middle of the desert from nothing. So this would be nothing for me. I've created this from absolutely nothing but dirt. Having that and, and being a decision maker and you're looking at that, you're saying, well, this is a guy who knows what he's doing. This is a, he's, he's an expert. And that's just based off of confidence and also body language and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So I, I think that's how I've been able to do it. You use the word confidence a few times yeah. um, while discussing your um, your persuasion techniques. Yeah. You Do you feel that confidence 
has a big part of persuasion is a big factor of persuasion do you feel like you could persuade somebody and not be confident um no so i don't think you can persuade someone if you're if you're not confident and the reason why is because in order to persuade someone he's about right, to take my line <laughs> i have no idea what she's talking about in order to persuade someone they've got to trust you because you're not going to trust someone if someone who doesn't know what they're doing or someone who, who, who looks like they don't know what they're doing, you're not going to trust them. So it's going to be hard for you to just do what they say. Like if a cop came to you and said, hey, hey, guys, I, I think we should go over here. You're going to be like, what the hell? This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not, I'm not going where he's saying. He ain't sure. He's not sure about it. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, so a lot of times, um, and, and there's, a, there's a process of, I, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of mirroring. The act of mirroring. You've have you heard of that before? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, so so in mirroring, what happens is you come in and and you start moving the same way the other person's moving, and as soon as you guys synchronize, then there's a there's a connection that's made, right? When so if you rub your nose and the other person rubs their nose, you guys are now doing the same gestures together, right? Because you guys are connected by the energy, right? So what happens is if I yawn, that person will yawn. If I sit and and open my chest and, and spread my arms, that person will kind of mimic me, right? If, if I'm trying to gain that, that um, if I'm trying to gain a connection with someone, I will do that intentionally. It's the same thing with energy. People are attracted to high energy. They're not attracted to low energy. So what happens is when you come in with high energy, they're immediately attracted to you because they want that energy. So what happens is when you come in and you're motivated and you're, and you're enthusiastic and you're, um, and you're confident, they, that's attractive to, to people like psychologically. So they immediately are attracted to you and they're, they're, they're motivated by your motivation. They're excited by your excitement. You know what I'm saying? When I was at Cardinal Health, we were dealing with a customer that was extremely upset with us. And whenever I would come to those meetings, I would pump everybody up because I'm like, we're gonna fix this. I understand you guys are upset. I, I know why you're upset, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And my energy is pumping everybody up because they're like, man, this guy's going to go in and he's going to fix this, you know, because he knows what he's doing. He's super confident and he's super energetic. You know what I'm saying? You know, in our podcast, when we talk about fake it till you make it, 90% of that is confidence. You're, what you're really faking is the confidence. You're not faking like the knowledge or the technical skills or any of that. You're faking the confidence. Even having confidence in what, you're, what it is that you're trying to sell. If you're trying to sell a dish that you despise, you're not going to be very convincing. Hey guys, I got a I got a bowl of beans. I need you guys to buy. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to buy a bowl of beans from somebody who hates beans, right? <laughs> but but if you come in and you go, man, this is the this is the most delicious. Here's a, here's a perfect example, and you'll you'll kind of laugh at this, Raquel, because you probably remember this. <laughs> when we were when we were living in Virginia, Raquel and I went to a fair. And when we were at the fair, there was this there was this uh, attraction. It was the the snake lady, right? And so uh, me and Raquel, we were really interested in seeing who the, what the snake lady looked like. So and it was a dollar, right? I think it was a dollar, right, or something like that, yeah. right? So we went up, and, and nobody else wanted to go and see this, but me and Raquel wanted to go see it. So we paid our dollar, and we went up there, and we looked inside. And basically, what it was was a lady's head wrapped around with a stuffed um, a stuffed body of a snake wrapped around her head. She had braids in her hair, and she's just looking at us like, "What's going on, guys?" <laughs> And it was so it was so ridiculous of a waste of money that we thought, man, we need everybody to waste their money to come see this. <laughs> and so the way that we persuaded them is when we came down, we were extremely excited about what we had just seen. So we were like, hey, that was amazing. Wasn't that so crazy? Like, and so everybody was like, what? It's like, man, you guys got to see that. That's the principle of persuasion of consensus, right? Which means when people around you like something or when people around you are, are interested in something it's more likely for you to be also interested in that right. thing as well and so when they saw that we had enjoyed it and they saw that we gave it good remarks and thumbs up they went and they all paid their dollar to go <laughs> see the snake lady and it was hilarious to watch them walk up there knowing what they were going to be so disappointed <laughs> uh -huh. and also i feel like they persuaded us because yes. we, it was like we we were intrigued to see what they did to create this snake lady <laughs> and you couldn't see through it and it had all these like words on the trailer and everything yeah. and yeah. so they really got your interest and so when we kind of got played we were like 
We were so disappointed. We needed to share the disappointment with other people. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think um, I think the energy is what kind of draws people. And I think I'm very likable. I'm very polite. I don't talk bad to people. I am not a negative person. You know what I'm saying? Like. I always bring the best energy that I can to every situation. And so Crystal was saying earlier today, we had lunch earlier today. And one of the things that she said was that people like being around our energy. A lot of times when we're in a room, the room is different because we're in it. Because the energy that we bring is high energy. It's motivational. It's we can do it. We can accomplish this. Let's, you know, we can work hard. It's, a, it's an air of success. It's an air of, of accomplishment. You know what I'm saying? When we leave the room, that energy leaves with us. And there's, there are people in the world that are like that, that have that kind of energy. And when they walk into a room, you're immediately pumped up. And that makes you likable. People like that. So they like you. And when they like you, they trust you. That is so true. That is true. Likeability has a huge part to 100%. do with um, persuasion, I believe. Yeah. Here's a, a thing I'm going to tell you about myself that, uh, that's kind of funny. So I don't get speeding tickets. I haven't gotten a speeding ticket in uh, like more than 10 years, right? But I've been stopped a lot of times. And a lot of times what I do is when I get pulled over, I immediately try to find a way to make this police officer like me enough to not give me a ticket. And the way that I do that is one, I'm polite. Two, I'm helpful, right? If I can be helpful, I'm helpful. Um, <laughs> Three is I try to find some, some common bond. And, and I'll tell you a little, a little, share a little story. Um, I was in New Mexico and I was driving to the airport. Um, and I was going to fly out of New Mexico. from I was driving from El Paso. And I was, I was definitely 100% speeding. I was probably going like maybe 85, 90 miles an hour. And the cop said he had been tailing me for like five miles. And I hadn't realized it before he pulled me over. And when he pulled me over, he was really upset. He was pissed off. Um, and he came to the window and he was like, give me your driver's license. You know how fast you were going? And I said, no, I really wasn't paying attention. Um, I'm pretty sure I was going over 80. I was honest, you know, I was going over 80, uh, probably 85. He was, no, you was going over 100. And I was like, there's no way I was going over 100. He said, tell it to the judge. I don't want to hear it. Tell it to the judge. Give me your driver's license. And so I went in my wallet. I pulled out my driver's license and I pulled out my military ID, right? I gave them both to him. He took the driver's license and he said, he looked at it and he said, Nobody asked you for your ID, Master Sergeant, and he gave me back my ID card, right? So immediately from that conversation, I understood that he understood rank, right? So I knew he had served somewhere, right? In some kind of capacity. I knew, and he walked away to go give him my ticket, right? And so he got the ticket, he wrote the ticket, and then he walked back to my car to give me the ticket. And as he's handing me my driver's license, I said, man, I just got a quick question for you, man. I saw that you recognized my rank on, the mil on my military ID, I'm like, did you serve? And he was like, yeah, I served. He was still mad. Yeah, I served. What? And I'm like, um, did you deploy? While you were, while, when, you, when you served, did you deploy? He was like, yeah, I deployed. I said, um, I said where'd you, where'd you go? Did you, were you in Iraq? He was like, yeah, I was in Iraq. I said, dude, I was in Iraq. <laughs> and he was like, he's like you, were, you were in Iraq? And I was like, yeah. I said, where were you, what base were you at? And so he told me. He was like, oh, I was on Liberty. I was on Camp Liberty. I said, dude, I was right across the street from you on Camp Slayer. And he was like, holy shit, you were in Slayer? I was like, yeah, what, what year were you there? So when we started having this conversation, and he now he likes me, right? Because we share a common story. We share a common experience. We've been to the same place. We, we both have a, um, a military connection. Like, we both have a deployment connection. And so he goes, tell you what I'm going to do, man. I'm not going to give you this ticket. Wow. <laughs> this is what I want you to do, man. I want you to go back to your unit when you get back and to tell all your soldiers that, that in your unit not to speed when they come through New Mexico. And I said, man, trust me, I got you, bro. I'm, that's what, as soon as I get back, that's what I'm going to tell him. And so he didn't even give me a warning ticket. All right? Sounds like he was annoyed that he pulls over soldiers a lot. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, he might have been. That's the epitome of likability. That's how you get someone to like you. And as soon as you build a bond with someone, then it's really hard for them to tell you no. And so uh, if you can find a way to connect with somebody, then it's easier to persuade them to... You know, do it what it is you want. And even that situation, it wasn't nefarious. It wasn't like I was trying to take his gun or like, you know what I'm saying? Like I wasn't persuading him to give me his weapon or, you know, something like that. But it's all about persuading him to not give me a ticket. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm not a bad guy. I just made a bad decision. You know what I'm saying? Help me out here. <laughs> you know, so. And you still missed your flight. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I missed my flight. It was terrible. 
A lot of times, um, a lot of times when we're traveling, Crystal will have me go and talk to, you know, the airline desk in order to get them to sit us together. Like, cause she knows I'll come in and I'll immediately get, get a good connection and convince them to, you know, do whatever we want. Now it doesn't always work. Sometimes but somehow it's impossible. he always puts me in the position of bad cop. I don't know why. Cause I'm not bad cop, but somehow I always end up being bad cop. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> so here, this is the way the, 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 the bad cop, good cop system works, right? This is, this is also a method of persuasion. Believe it or not. So what happens is your brain, your brain has to have consistency. Okay. So when you're, when you're, when you get to play in good cop, bad cop, what happens is the person comes in with the bad cop mentality, right? Bad, bad cop, bad cop, bad cop, bad cop, bad cop. And then, so the person that you're, that you're interacting with is on the defense because you're coming at them, right? So they're defensive, defensive, defensive. And all of a sudden you get the guy who comes in, who's all cool. He's like, Hey man, I know she's, she's mean. I know, but look, <laughs> all we want is this one thing to get done. And if you do this, this won't even be a problem. And so because he's, he's off put, he's mentally, he's not, he's no, can no longer be defensive. He's confused now. He doesn't know what to do. So it, it messes with his mind. And so you have a, a higher propensity to get an agreement. You know what I'm saying? Off the good cop, bad cop. She's just naturally a bad cop. <laughs> it got nothing to do with me. She's a bad cop and she plays her role well. And so sometimes I have to be the good cop. I'm the That's one playing the up. role. <laughs> but you know, here's the thing. You can't have two bad cops because you won't get what you want. You know what I'm saying? You're not going to persuade nobody being two bad cops. So, yeah. And, and I think Crystal and I, we're very good at kind of playing off each other. Typically when I'm upset, she's not. And when she's upset, I'm not. So um, we're able to, you know, play good cop, bad cop pretty good when we have to. <laughs> that's true that's a great um persuasion teamwork that you guys got going on there. <laughs> that's it that's it it doesn't always work but sometimes it does you know what i'm saying <laughs> aesop says persuasion is often more effective than force before we begin looking at the six principles of persuasion, it is important to understand the difference between persuasion and manipulation. These two topics are very close cousins to each other. Persuasion is the action or fact of motivating someone to do or believe something. Manipulation, on the other hand, can be defined as the action of controlling someone in a clever or unscrupulous way. What are your thoughts on these two different definitions? What are your thoughts on dark psychology? I honestly think that people could perceive persuasion as being either one in almost any given situation because you can have a positive impact and a negative impact as far as two people are concerned when you're utilizing methods. So if you're, if you're selling something and you get somebody to buy something that they really didn't want to buy and they spent their money, they could be looking at that as you manipulated them and think that you were somehow trying to control them and they kind of fell into it. How do you kind of say, well, you're manipulating, you're not persuading? For me, it's um, manipulation is a win-lose interaction. So in manipulation, you win and the other person loses. Um, in persuasion, persuasion is a win-win type. That's how I look at it. So in persuasion, for example, you're in, you're in the market for a car. I'm in the market to sell a car. So if I get you to buy my car, I've persuaded you. You've got a car that you want or that, you know, you got a car that I've- That, I've, <laughs> that you didn't want. It, well, if, if you- <laughs> That's a win. Yeah, now, 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 if the car is, has a problem that I'm covering up and I've given you a junker, then that's, then that's a, a win-lose, that's a manipulation. Right. Yeah, so even in the same scenario, it's the outcome that determines whether it was a manipulation or a persuasion. Because if you're in the, in the market for a car and I sell you a car and you get what you want, even though like you might have bought that other car, you know what I'm saying? If I wouldn't have, if you never ran into me, you may have. And here's this happened to me when I was talking to you about the story about my, my, the first time I ever bought a car with zero miles on it. I was persuaded, to, I was in the market to buy a car. I went there to buy a car. And what he did was, he said, hey, why are you buying a used car? Why don't you buy this brand new one? It's really nice, shiny one. And as a matter of fact, here are the keys. Go drive it, right? And you keep it for the weekend. Come see me on Monday. And if you want it, if you don't want it, I'll take it back. Well, that was a, me that was a, that was a method of persuasion. I didn't understand the, the psychology of it at the time, but that's how I got roped into buying that car. That I, you know, yeah, I was in the market for a car and I ended up getting a car. I didn't feel bad about the purchase, you know what I'm saying? But then later, later years later, when I'm looking back at it, I'm like, okay, 
yeah, that, this is what this is where it went wrong. This is why I ended up getting pulled into that purchase, you know, because he was in the market to sell a new car, and I was in the market to buy a, a used car. <laughs> so, but yeah, we it was still a win win, you know. I still ended up with a car, and he still he still ended up selling one. I definitely love that example of um, you buying a car, and even how you explained it as a win win or win lose, because a lot of times. People can find other people manipulative, but I think that it could be persuasion. They just don't really realize the difference of manipulation and persuasion. Right. Um, if, if you walk away. I, but are they going to think it's manipulation if th- they got to win? <laughs> no, no, you won't because you won't even think about it. What are your thoughts on dark psychology? Dark psychology is um, uh, psychological manipulation of people in a way where they don't know they're being manipulated. Dark psychology is like gaslighting, um, hypnotism, obviously manipulating when you're creating a situation where it's a win, win, lose. For example, uh, Bernie Madoff, when he did that scandal, like what he was doing was dark psychology. Now he's using method of persuasion, but for negative, nefarious reasons. Let's say, for example, I'm a controlling person and I want to be able to control Crystal and do it, do whatever I want. I start off by separating her from her family. Hey, your family's nothing. Your family's garbage. I don't want your family around here. I don't want your sister here. I don't want your, I don't want your brothers here. Um, so now I've isolated her, right? So now she has no one but me. And then I start telling her, you're not good at this. You're not good at that. You're not good at this. You're never good at that. Like now I'm breaking down her self-esteem. That's all dark psychology in the works because all you're trying to do is you're trying to make this person act the way that you want them to act in a way that you want them to be, obedient. I want you to be home. I want you to be obedient. I want you to do exactly what I say. That's a method of, of dark psychology. The person who's being manipulated loses everything. So would you say that dark psychology is definitely manipulation? Like- 100% manipulation. And it's always for nefarious reasons. It's always so that the person who's exercising it has the ability. And you know what? It could be, it could be a lawyer. A lawyer can use dark psychology when they go, hey, guys, if you look at it from this perspective, this is what it looks like. But if you turn the camera around over here, now look at it. You know what I'm saying? Now you're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to insert doubt. Because you're trying to make this person think the way you want them to think so that, that the jury votes your way. You know what I'm saying? Anyone can use dark psychology. Let's say, for example, commercials to sell you uh, medication, right? When they go, and these are the side effects. You know, and they don't really, you don't really get to hear it all. You know what I'm saying? So you, you, all you hear is the benefits of it. I love dark psychology. <laughs> love dark, dark psychology. <laughs> it's my favorite. 